Episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to sit down with you and to be able to allow you to hear a conversation that I had with a post Mormon group in southern Utah on the 10th of December 2017. In this conversation, I start off doing, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes of me just talking about my story, um, talking about how I see development in the context of Mormonism and also outside of Mormonism, and how I reconcile the messiness of Mormonism. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation because after the 35 minutes or so of me just talking, I open it up to about an hour and 20 minutes of question and answers. And the questions are phenomenal. And and none of this talk was prepared. I had one quote uh, copied and pasted that I wanted to make sure I read somewhere along the way, which I did. But otherwise, this is all off the cuff. And I try to be really honest and really vulnerable to, to the crowd, to their faith journeys, and to the reasons in which they see enough messiness to have removed themselves from Mormonism. And I know that Orthodox members will be really uncomfortable with this conversation, and I'm sure I say a thing or two that's going to get uh, get me in a little bit of hot water, but I think it's important that we are authentic and we are vulnerable when we engage in these conversations. And so now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Um, so I don't know all of you. I'm Leanne Warwin. And I am. <laughs> um, I'm excited to introduce Bill. Um, some of you know Bill through his podcast, Mormon Discussions, and um, that's a really cool thing, and he's been interviewed few, at least twice by John Lewin, and um, he's a deep thinker, he's been a bishop, he was a convert to the church, he has a really interesting story, but I didn't know any of that when I first met Bill. What I find most fascinating, Bill, is that he's my friend, and the reason I say that is because um, last, it was a year ago this month that I went into the store he manages, which is Stanley Pond in Hurricane, which is a great store. It's a really fun store. I was looking for a frame. I'd never been in there before. And I just, I was caught off guard to find all this, like the death mask, copies of the death mask with Joseph and the Hiram and different things. And I thought, wow, this is interesting in a, in a pond store. And um, as we started talking, I had, December was when I was trying to give the church another chance. I was trying again. I was trying to come back in, but I was just really feeling, um, and that's a totally different story for another time. It's my story. But the thing that struck me with Bill, I don't even know how we started talking about Mormonism. Well, definitely probably going to give a little bit away, but um, his acceptance, his kindness, and his enthusiasm. And I felt immediately like I had found a kindred spirit and somebody that was a questioner like I am, and somebody that doesn't want to just have black and white answers, but to dig a little deeper and to, to look at things. And um, we just, in that very first night, became friends. I walked out with some things that he had written about Fowler's stages of faith, and um, and I had a friend just that fast. And as we've talked about different things, what um, I mentioned that he's kind and he's loving and he's accepting, he's not judgmental, but that doesn't mean that he is a yes man in any way. And one of the things I love about Bill is that he, like I, really, and, and probably most of you, authenticity is a huge 
priority in his life and that we're always trying to look beyond the assumptions. And um, that's what I think he's going to help us to today is that there is not, he, um, I wanted to share this is on his um, website, I love this last thing, but he said, many of us were taught Mormonism that simply is unrealistic, too simplistic, too black and white. Open up and take a deep look at the real Mormonism. And I'll let him go from helpfully like me where he's at because I've also watched his journey and what he's doing. But he is somebody that looks underneath, that doesn't want to take assumptions, that doesn't want to just say this is bad, this is good. And so I'm excited to hear what he has to say. So please welcome him. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, let me start off by saying to something to what she said, which is that I value deeply being authentic and I value deeply being vulnerable. And as I found myself in what I call the second half of life, actually Richard Rohr calls it that and I've stolen it from him, but the second half of life when we've woken up and I think, I think all, if not most of us, or I should say most of us, not all of us, probably have gotten to a place where we've entered that second half of life where we're kind of aware and we kind of see the world maybe for what it really is, or at least more so, rather than kind of being in that ethnocentric, uh, very tribal, very protective, very boundary maintenance type of view that we, I think all of us probably held at one time. Um, I'm an open book. And so as I share maybe a little bit about my story and a little bit about how I see Mormonism, um, when I'm done, like whatever questions you want to ask, you're not going to offend me. Um, I tend to be seen sometimes as an enigma. True believing Latter-day Saints in the church see me as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And those who are out of the church see me as just an idiot for staying. <laughs> and, and so I'd love after this conversation is over for you guys to have a chance to like probe as deep as you want and ask whatever you want. And I'll try to be as vulnerable as I can and share what my Mormonism is. But I should start probably with a little bit of my story. Um, I grew up in Ohio, born in Sandusky, Ohio. If anybody knows Cedar Point, America's uh, largest roller coaster park, grew up just blocks away from there, uh, right on Lake Erie, one of the Great Lakes. Uh, childhood full of fishing and camping and, and had really good parents. My parents didn't have really much of a, a religious background. My dad has always believed there's something bigger out there but he's never had an interest in religion at all. But he's always made the argument that religion is good for society uh, on some level. And my mom, my mom had a really rough childhood. She grew up as a, a Baptist, but she stopped going to church when she was 16 years old. And um, she ended up in foster care for a while and just had a really, I think, a traumatic childhood. So traumatic to the extent that she just won't talk to me about it. And, and you know how this is, right? Like you value connection. You value deep relationships at this place in your life. And all I want is my mom to tell me her story, and she holds it back. Um, but she's not, she's not very religious either. And so I grew up in a household that we never went to church. The only time we went to church was for a funeral or a wedding. And the only time I ever talked to God was when I wanted a bicycle or a girlfriend. <laughs> and, those, and those prayers weren't answered either. <laughs> Um, at the age of 12, I started drinking alcohol. At the age of 14, I started using marijuana. By the age of 16, I was selling drugs a little bit and considered myself kind of a, a thug. And uh, my life was going down a certain track. Nobody in my entire family had gone to college. 
Nobody. And my friends and my parents and their their siblings, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, it was kind of a blue-collar um, style of living. Everybody had had you know these factory jobs, worked at a quarry, worked on road pavement companies. Uh, my mom was a nurse, but it was blue-collar. And my family, my dad and, and his siblings and all these cousins that I was around all the time, I had two cousins on the street that I grew up in, grew up on. And this whole family, I mean, what they did was they just worked their tail end off Monday through Friday and then drank themselves all weekend long. And that was the life I was heading towards. That's where I was going. And when I was 17 years old, I applied for a job at a fast food restaurant and met a wonderful young lady who's actually my wife now. I met a wonderful young lady there, and she's Mormon. And my life is full of rebellion and doing the wrong things and making bad choices. And I meet this girl, and I meet her family, and right away her dad's like, hey, you should go to church with us. And I'm like, what church do you go to? And he tells me, and we're the Mormons. I'm like, one thing I know about Mormons is they've got lots of wives and live out there in Utah, right? And, and you don't, you don't, I don't think you understand, like when you get out in the mission field, like out in Ohio and Indiana, we just don't know anything about Mormons. Nobody's talking about it. It's not even relevant. And so I start going to church with my girlfriend and her family, and it doesn't take long before I just, Mormonism has something that captured me. And, and I need to tell this part because as I get to the, because I, I, I know we're, you know, my journey is your journey. And yeah, I'm in and, and a lot of you are out. But trust me, I know your journey well and I feel the same way you do about almost every issue. Um, but I have to tell this part of the story because it's important for you to understand why I stay. And it has so much to do with what Mormonism did for me in that moment. When I was a 17-year-old kid heading down the wrong track in life, Mormonism came to me and said, no, you're special. There's something about you. You've got potential. And, and so I take the missionary discussions and, and the story of Joseph Smith going into a grove and praying, getting an answer. And here I am, 17, and I'm like, yeah. And, and I, so I sought God. And I sought answers on those questions that the missionaries ask us to seek answers on. And I got those answers. Now, again, I might interpret those answers a little differently today. But I got those answers. And they meant so much to me. And so I, like, in that moment, I knew Mormonism was true. And so I, I give up these behaviors in my life. I give up these things that I'm doing. And, and I, it's almost like the church picks me up off one place and sets me down on a completely different track. And so I end up going to college. I don't finish college. But I'm the first person in my entire family to go to college. And I didn't complete it. But cousins behind me and my brother went and got their degrees. And I felt like, like even though I didn't finish, like I was the first one, this, this kind of pioneer frontier doing something new, um, doing something that, that those behind me would benefit from by just seeing like, oh, we're a real, and we can go to college. We can do that. Um, I joined the church, and patriarchy worked really well for me. I mean it. Like I'm two weeks into being a member of the church, and they call me to be the assistant ward mission leader, and I don't even have priesthood yet, right? I'm not even a Melchizedek priesthood holder. And I'm the assistant ward mission leader. And I'm meeting with these missionaries who just baptized me, and they're my age. And, they're, and they're, I look up to them, and they're just, 
They're such an example to me. I go from one lifestyle to something very different. Um, Seventeen. Seventeen years old. Yeah. Yeah. Right away. I went from being the assistant, not the award mission, but the assistant award mission leader. And I went from being the assistant award mission leader to being the secretary in Elders Quorum, right? That was the next calling. And then from there, I went to being a first counselor in Elders Quorum twice. And then from there, I went into a young men's presidency. And then I was the Elders Quorum president. Then I was a counselor in the bishopric. And then at 29 years old, I was called to be a bishop. And and you also need to understand this, that as I was investigating the church, like I wanted to know everything about Mormonism because it just seemed like the coolest thing on the planet. And so I go to the Sadusky Library, my library in my hometown, and I'm looking up Joseph Smith and I'm looking up Mormonism and I find this book by Fawn Brody, No Man Knows My History, a biography of the prophet Joseph Smith. And as a 17-year-old investigator of the church, you're like, wow, here's the gold mine. I just found a biography of Mormonism and it's so hard to find something out here in, out here in Ohio. And so I, I read that book and it crushes me as I'm taking the discussions, I'm taking the lessons from the missionaries, it just crushes me. And right away, even before becoming a member, I realized like there's issues. I realized like there's problems and there's things that don't add up. But right away, I get myself kind of um, immersed into farms at the time and Fair Mormon and Book of Mormon Answer Man, if anybody remembers that guy, on a site called New Jerusalem and I have no idea what happened to that, but that was one that I spent. So I, right after I joined the church and I go to college, to, uh, my field is in elementary education. That's what I wanted to do is be a teacher. And several times during each class day, I would have an open period. In that open period, I would just go to the school library uh, computer center and get on the computer. And essentially, you could just because you were a student, you could print off as much stuff as you wanted. So every day I'd walk out with like a hundred sheets of papers of things from Book of Mormon Answer Man and, and Farms and Fair Mormon and just read that stuff every night. And so, and again, I'm kind of meshing the story a little bit, but as an investigator, I know the issues, but Mormonism is so compelling to me that I still join. And right away, even though I'm knowing this messiness and I'm swimming in apologetics, I'm also moving through the ecclesiastical leadership. And at 29 years old, I'm called to be a bishop. 29 years old. To me, that's like amazing. Because I look around in Ohio and I see all these 50, 60, 70-year-old bishops. And I'm like the only guy who's this young. Um, But being a bishop is what sent me into my faith crisis. Because for the first time, I'm getting to see those who I see as way higher up than me in authority. And I'm seeing them be really human. I'm seeing real severe issues of ecclesiastical abuse. I'm seeing real serious issues of narcissism. I'm seeing serious issues of people just exercising what we say in Mormonism as unrighteous dominion. And that was eye-opening to me. Like I'd always known these issues, but all of a sudden there was this perfect storm of not only is there some messiness over here, but these men of God who I feel are... I've looked up to as being like, oh, they get revelation and they get to speak for the Lord to tell us how these wards and stakes run. And I saw all that imperfection and somehow it just came to a head where these two things came together. And I sensed like, oh, something's not right here. Something's unhealthy here. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But I also recognized too, like having looked into apologetics and having known like these issues for all this time, 
I always prided myself on being the guy who knew the answer to the question that nobody even else knows the question. And there's almost an arrogance when you begin to say like, oh yeah, Book of Abraham, there's five solutions. Here they are. Let me lay them out for you. They all have problems, but you know, pick which one you like, right? And, and I, think, I think we do that. Like early on, we're trying to make things fit. Like we find these answers and solutions and we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm smart. There's this real complicated answer and I'll just hold this ground. Um, but I woke up one day and I realized like, oh, why am I the only guy in my ward why am I the only guy in my stake who even knows this stuff? Like, why didn't the church tell us? Like, how come the, every member of the ward doesn't know these things? And so it, it just hit me one morning like, oh, we've, we've hidden stuff. We've kept people from seeing these things. We've obscured through the mechanisms of our culture and our correlated material, we've obscured the ability of anybody like discovering all of this, right? And you realize like it's it's there's so much that makes Mormonism complicated. Like sometimes you feel like you're in a ten minute conversation with somebody, you just like, I can't go there. There's no way in ten minutes I could explain to you just how messy this is, and so you leave it be. Like I would need I think I have a pretty good hold on Mormonism and I would need at least three hours of your complete silence to lay out everything. Um Mormonism is not only messy, it is such a expansive breath of messiness over 200 years that you can't even connect dots without just being allowed a ton of time. And so at, so at 32 years old, three years into being bishop is when this happened, and I just crash. I mean, I crash. I'm to the point where I'm sitting in my chair one morning at my computer, and I'm like, I'm just going to write my stake president to tell him to release me. And my plan is, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to sit in the back of the chapel until I kind of figure this out. And, and so I hit what, what I would call the dark night of the soul, just a real deep faith crisis. And, and again, I think everyone in this room kind of understands that journey. Um, I knew that there weren't, I began to realize there weren't good answers to the questions. And, and I'm still learning that. Like I still learn new things every week, every month, as I'm just still always immersed in Mormonism. Um, Just recently, I learned the Lucy Walker story. Lucy Walker is a plural wife of Joseph Smith. Joseph takes her into his home as a foster child and promises to care for her as his own children and then soon after approaches her with plural marriage. And I just learned that like just a few months ago and just did a podcast episode on it. So I'm still learning like how messy Mormonism is. Um, But at 32 years old, I crash. I'm considering writing my stake president. And I end up writing a couple of church leaders. I talk to Elder Holland. I write Elder Holland. He actually responds back. But at first, he has Marlon Jensen call me. And I'm happy to talk about that in the q and I don't want to go into it necessarily here unless you guys want to know more about it. Um, but as I had this conversation with these two leaders, I begin to realize, like, oh, there's mechanisms in our culture that keep us from talking to each other, that keep us from revealing, like, oh, I'm on this really problematic journey, too. This is really messy. Like, like the mechanisms of Mormonism cause silence and cause us to fear having open conversations with each other. But as I had these conversations with Elder Elder Holland and Marlon Jensen, I begin to like go, no, no, I'm going to start talking. I'm going to start saying something. And so you read all these horror stories online about marriages that just crash when one spouse comes out and says they're having a faith crisis. And you read about leaders telling the spouse to divorce the other one. And, and all these stories scared me to death. 
And I love my wife, but I didn't tell her any of this. And so I'm going through my faith crisis for maybe nine months to a year before I realize, like, no, I have to tell her. And it's a scary moment. Like, I don't know, I don't know what she's going to do. I don't know how she's going to react. I don't know. Maybe this is the beginning of the end for our marriage if I tell her I've lost it. And so I go to my wife and I say, Amanda, I'm having a faith crisis, and I don't know if the church is true anymore. And I'm, I, I'll be forever grateful for her response because, again, I'm fearing all the worst things about ready to come out of her mouth. And what she says is, okay, let's go church hopping. Let's go try something else. <laughs> and that answer was amazing because what it did was it gave me time. It said, oh, this isn't a precipice moment revealing this to her. She's going to be patient with me. She's going to give me time to process this. So I said, I I can hang around here. I'll just stay in Mormonism and work this out. And in, in working that out, I begin to take every piece of Mormonism and just take it apart, like every piece, and then look at all the pieces and what has value and what doesn't and put it back together. And one of the things that I came across in doing that was um, faith development. Um, Leanne mentioned follower stages of faith. It was a huge help to me. I came across a Mormon Stories interview with John DeLynn and uh, Tom Kimball and Dan Witherspoon where they just spend like three episodes going through follower stages of faith. And it had been the first time I had heard that. It was the first time that I heard that there was human development and that it was normal to be in an ethnocentric view early in our lives where we belong to a tribe and we want to fit in our tribe. We want to walk like our tribe, talk like our tribe. We want to do whatever it takes to be accepted by that tribe. And our tribe's the best tribe on the planet, right? And then to realize like we, at some point, some wall we hit and we leave that ethnocentricity and we walk into what's called world centricity. And in world centricity, like we go, oh, there's other tribes and those people are pretty cool too. And not everything's black and white. And I no longer sense that my authorities have all the answers. So I'm going to begin to look at other authorities in other walks of life. And I'm also realizing that I have my own authority. Like inside me, there's some authority. And and that means something. Like I can make my own decisions and I can disagree with people and I can hold my own ground. And as I begin to learn that development, like it was life-changing for me because I now realized... I wasn't having a Mormon faith crisis. I was having a human experience. And once I grasped that I was having a human experience, I could see Mormonism for the pimple on the world's history, right? This little dot. This little dot that is irrelevant. And again, I don't mean that as as mocking Mormonism. Like, you could take any religion. In the course of human history, since human beings walk the earth Whatever, definitely not 5,482 years ago, right? Way further back than that. Like, humans have a human experience, and humans develop. And what I'm experiencing in Mormonism, I could have experienced in other walks of life, or maybe other walks of life would have been more gentle, and I wouldn't have found myself in that development. And, and so one of the things I always want to bring up when I have these kinds of conversations, because I, I get, like, I'm in the church, and again, most of you, I think, are out, and there may be this sense of maybe even animosity. We're like, what the heck are you still doing, Bill Real? And, and I simply want to say, like, I, in my head, I recognize that when we immerse ourselves 
in cultures, in tribes, in families, in marriages, in relationships, where the group says, this is the way we're going to behave, and you say, I'm not quite going to do it your way, that tension, as much as it might make us angry, as much as it might make us uncomfortable, I deeply believe that tension is, for most of us, is healthy for development. And I don't say you have to do it inside Mormonism. That's what I'm doing. But but I would suggest that all of us not completely avoid connected relationships where there's tension. Because I deeply believe that if we immerse ourselves in walks of life where there is a tension, like it's good for our human development. It's what pushes us from um, ethnocentricity to world centricity. And hopefully someday we step into a whole other sphere which is called cosmic centricity. And in cosmic centricity, you completely step back from the entire world for a moment and you see everybody as just humans. And yes, we're hurting each other, but we're just humans having a human experience and it's natural. And you begin to see like over the course of history, humans have developed. One of the, uh, when, when this was announced on Facebook, a gentleman jumped in and said, I got a couple of questions for you. He, he, and his question was, I wanted to know, Bill Real, why... Why myth that isn't true is important? And if I don't know if any of you have read the book or listened to the audiobook of Sapiens. Okay, right? So Sapiens, in the, the book is fascinating, especially the first half of the book, when he just lays out the history of human beings. And in the book Sapiens, um, he makes this uh, observation which can be shown scientifically which is that when you get human beings, they can stay connected up to about a group of about 150. 150 people. And once you get beyond 150 people, you have to have myths of some sort to hold those people together. Now, they don't have to be religious myths. They can be, you know, we are the great country of America, and we have great founders, and they've done, you know, George Washington, the cherry tree. And we, we can tell stories all day long. But we need myths. And if we don't have myths, we no longer stay connected as a people once we reach a group larger than 150. And so I know, I know Orthodox Mormons see Mormonism as the path, as Christ's path for us all to walk. But I don't see it that way. And I hope you'll understand the way I frame it. Sorry, I've got a dry mouth. Um, I want to think how I want to phrase this. For me, uh, and maybe, maybe it's easy if I read the quote first, because this is one I've been thinking about. It's one I use all the time. Riza Aslan. Does everybody know who Riza Aslan is? Riza Aslan is a member of the Islam faith. He is a professor of Christianity. I don't know what university he's at. Just a really cool guy. And he's the one who wrote Zealot, which is a book on the historical Jesus. And Riza Aslan says this. He says, my well is Islam. And in particular, the Sufi tradition. Let me be clear. I am Muslim not because I think Islam is truer than other religions. It isn't. But because Islam provides me with the language I feel most comfortable with in expressing my faith. It provides me with certain symbols and metaphors for thinking about God that I find useful in making sense of the universe and my place in it. And that's how I feel. Like I could just change the words. I could say my well is Mormonism. 
and in particular the Latter-day Saint tradition. Let me be clear, I'm not Mormon because I think Mormonism is truer than other religions. It isn't. But because Mormonism provides me with the language I feel most comfortable with in expressing my faith, it provides me with certain symbols and metaphors for thinking about God that I find useful in making sense of the universe and my place in it. So why am I Mormon? Like, Mormonism isn't the path anymore for me. But Mormonism is a tool belt I wear on the path. For me, the path is human experience. It's human development. And so what I love is being in social groups, uh, being in relationships, being in connection with others, where we're encouraging ourselves into development. And I see whatever Jesus is, and I'll simply say, like, I, I don't know where people stand in this room on Jesus. I'm sure some of you are atheists. I'm sure some of you still hold some Christian belief or some belief in a higher being. But I would simply say that, like, I don't know if Jesus is historical. I don't know if that guy rose on the third day. But, like, in some real way in my life, like, I've been affected by his grace and mercy. And, and my brain's able to separate that. Like, Jesus may be completely non-historical. And yet, I've still been affected by his grace and mercy. And so I see Mormonism as a tool belt I wear on the path. And we can pick whatever tool belts we want. And just like a real tool belt, we can take some tools out that are useless, that we just don't use in our daily life. And we can put other tools in. But the tool belt I use is Mormonism. And, and it seems to provide me a way in which to interact with the world and to be on the path, which I believe is human development. When Jesus says that straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be that find it, I only have to look around and see how few people wake up to the world around them and exit ethnocentricity to realize, like, Jesus, whoever that man was, I deeply believe that when you read his words, whether those are his words or attributed to him by others, what he's calling us to do is to stop doing the boundary maintenance that happens inside an ethnocentric tribe. And he's inviting us to claim our own inner authority. And he's asking us to stop seeing the world in black and white ways. And that's the Jesus I believe in deeply. And so I'm in Mormonism. I'm active. I have a recommend. I go, I go, we're out of town sometimes. We're doing things as a family, but we go most of the time. And each of our kids are disconnected to one level or another. My wife and I both are in different places. But we go because it's our tribe. It's in my bones. It doesn't wash off like Methodism, right? Like Mormonism asks such a commitment from you over the course of your life that by the time you wake up to it, you're like, oh, what else do I do? This is all I know. It's in your bones. And so I still choose to interact with Mormonism because what else am I going to do? Like where else am I? Like I'm not taking the Elder Ballard approach like where will you go? Because I think that's just not healthy. But for me as an individual person, like this is interesting to me. And it gives me a chance to have really deep conversations with really deep people. And so I choose to stay. But Mormonism isn't, isn't the answer. But it is a catalyst, I think, for growth. And so that's my story. Thank you. As you notice, I'll choose my words carefully. You'll never catch me proclaiming disbelief. You'll always see me phrase my faith in words like hope, right? So let me explain that. I, I have very serious doubts that Mormonism is true. Very serious. 
Um, my brain does a really good job of compartmentalizing. So there are places in my head, large chunks of my brain, where I can say this doesn't add up, and this doesn't fit, and this doesn't make any sense. But there's also little pieces of my brain that still want to argue certain things in favor of Mormonism. And so I'm willing to hold out, even if I see it as just the size of a mustard seed, right? If I can just hold out just that little tiny space in my head for hoping that there's something real going on here, even if we've completely overreached and misinterpreted it, then I'm willing to call that little grain of hope faith. And, and I'm willing to allow that to be present in the conversation as much as me saying this is messy and doesn't add up. And so you'll never catch me on the spot saying, like, this is all bullcrap. Even though a large chunk of my brain could certainly engage that argument and agree with it. Does that make sense? But have they asked you to not speak or to publish things? Or do they know? Um, so about a year and a half, maybe a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago, I wrote about half of the top 15. And an email that went out separate to each of the half of the 15 that I wrote so that none of them would know who else I wrote unless they had a conversation with each other, right? And that, and I, and I know some of the members of the 15, again, I've had conversations with Elder Hall, I know some of them are at least sensitive to who I am and what I'm doing. Not that they agree with it, but that they would prefer to give some space to that. But I also know there are other members of the 15 who um, simply don't want there to be any uh, flexibility right and openness and so within a few weeks of me sending out that um, email I get a phone call from the stake executive secretary my stake president wants to meet with me and so I go in and sit with my stake president and he makes it pretty clear right away that the top you know some of the members of the 15 got an email from you and that email was sent back to me with instruction that I sit down with you because we think you are not, it's just a we. He goes, they think you are in apostasy. And my stake president and I met about three times. Nice long conversations. I asked a bunch of my listeners to uh, write a letter to me or to my stake president, but knowing that he would be the one that would read these after I did. And I handed him a stack of about 20 of these, of, of listeners of mine who have been following the podcast since the beginning, and they just deeply care and, and have concern over my work. And he read every one of them. And he came back after reading those and he said, Bill, I don't think you're an apostasy. He said, don't do this and this. And those things were, don't tell, don't say publicly that the brethren are absolutely wrong. Because, and they are sometimes, but the, but a mature, but a mature view. Of, that is the ultimate sin is saying that the brethren. It is. The real mature today are wrong. Yeah, there's, what, what seems like more serious things, right? Like saying like, I don't know if Jesus is historical. You can get away with. <laughs> but telling these 15 men they're wrong is an issue. Um, but I also recognize like in a deeper place of my life, like being vulnerable, like sometimes I'm wrong too. And sometimes I think I'm right. In fact, I know I'm right and I'm wrong. And so I think it's fair to, to grant this space where like I have an opinion, they have an opinion. I think their opinion's wrong, but I also could be wrong too. And, and I sometimes struggle to take that kind of mature approach, but in my head, if I'm just calmed down, like that's, I, I like I recognize that's real. And so my stake president um, 
said, you're not an apostasy, I don't think. Don't, don't criticize the brethren. Don't tell them they're wrong. You, he didn't even say don't criticize them. Just don't tell them they are wrong. Don't, like, don't tell your listeners these guys are absolutely wrong and your view is absolutely right. Like, leave some room for that to be somewhat up in the air maybe. The, the other thing he said not to do was not to tell my listeners what to go back into their wards and share in Sunday school. Like I was sharing little Facebook posts that would say like, hey, next week's lesson's on the seer stone. Here's a cool source. I would read this in class, right? And, and they said they don't want you to do that. And he said if you don't do, he goes, if you don't do those two things, like keep doing what you're doing. You're helping people. And he's orthodox, but he's able to see that there is some value in having these vulnerable conversations. And s- what's that? Unlike some. Yes. Not, not all leaders are that way. Um, so, so far... And I, I just had to cancel an appointment with the state president. He wants to meet with me again. I don't know what it's about, right? Maybe I've crossed the line again. Um, but so far, it's like you make us uncomfortable, but we're going to try and tolerate you. And that's kind of the space I'm in. Thank you. I uh, you had a hand up first. We'll get you. Do you enjoy going to church? So I, that's a good. Yeah, I am. I'm a fighter. Like, like I just I want to go head to head with anybody I disagree with. Like I want to roll up my sleeves. And I want to go at it. So here's how church works for me. During Sunday, three hour block, I'm generally miserable. Okay, I'm generally miserable, and all I'm looking for, like I'm actually in my heart going, please say something controversial. Please say something controversial. And if somebody says it. And if the space is right, because I am sensitive to people and their feelings, and I don't want to rip things out from my <coughs> So if the space is right, then I raise my hand and say, I've got a different of opinion, difference of opinion. Here's what I think. The problem is, about 80% of the time, the space isn't right. And so you sit in silence wishing you could say something. And in those Sundays, I go home usually with a headache, a literal headache. And I don't feel good, and I'm not happy. But this weird thing happens. I get through the week... And I get to Saturday and I'm like, yeah, I want to do, I want to do that again, right? I want to, so, so I don't enjoy church, but I think I enjoy church. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, as you move toward what was the term, uh, cosmic? Cosmic centricity. Centricity. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that even bothering with the, some of the discussions about the this and that of Mormonism or Mormon history uh, might feel increasingly irrelevant. They do. Why bother? Because because every day... Why not talk about what you do now? Yeah. You kind of newly, freshly understand. You, you need, though, to wrap that conversation up in the stories and ideas that people are familiar with for them to give that an opening shot, right? And we also need to be present that while we all are on the other side of this journey and we've already experienced these thousand things, there's somebody right now, this very second, waking up to Mormonism and its messiness right this moment. And so part of why I choose to stay is to recognize like there's people entering that conversation right now and they need a safe space to process this journey. And so while Mormonism becomes less and less relevant to me, I also realize like I have an effect on a lot of people. And so maybe the most important thing isn't what's relevant to me. 
but what's relevant to those who are entering development right now. What is your goal to get deflowered? Great question. And again, we'll get all of you guys, I promise. Um, Is my goal to get people out? I think it's natural that when we move out of ethnocentricity into um, world centricity, most people are going to exit high demand fundamentalist religions, which Mormonism is one. So I think a natural consequence of human development is people will lose their faith in a rigid tribalistic paradigm. So, so my work will cause people to leave. That's not my motive. I see that as that's going to happen. That's natural. I don't care. Whether people stay in Mormonism or they go, I don't care. I simply want to have conversations that encourage people into development. I simply want to have conversations that get people to begin to develop their own inner authority and to let go of black and white paradigms and to do all the other things that comes with that kind of growth. And so will people leave? Yes. Do I get happy? Am I excited when someone says, I left Mormonism yesterday? I don't. Like, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. Um, And I think Mormonism is good for some people. It was good for 17-year-old me. And had I not found Mormonism, like, I would be somewhere completely different today. And I guarantee that would involve more risky behavior, which isn't always bad, right? But more risky behavior. And it would also involve... Um, me being less productive in my life. Fair enough? Okay. So, internally, you're living uh, within uh, cosmic centricity, which you're maintaining... On my my best days. Okay. Good point. Uh, But yet, you are maintaining and functioning within... You're a tribal centricity. How is that going for you? Uh, yeah, sure. You've already addressed several parts of that. Yeah. Um, I finally realized about eight months ago, and I did an episode on it titled Spiritual Trauma. I finally realized eight months ago that I'm experiencing trauma in Mormonism. Like, I used to think, like, I see all of you hurting. I see all of you having hurt in that moment. And those who are in Mormonism right now who are dealing with all this, like I realize they're hurting and some of their marriages are on the rocks. Some of their families have distanced themselves from them. I didn't deal with any of that. And so I thought that I was immune to the real unhealthiness of Mormonism. Like I saw it, but it wasn't affecting me. And then one day I went into Sunday school and we got into a discussion on, I think it was the first vision. And they were saying things that were completely historically inaccurate in the priest in my priesthood uh, quorum. And so all of a sudden I noticed my hand was shaking. And I raised my hand. And my voice is cracking. And I go home that day and I'm still shaking after church. And I recognize like I'm experiencing spiritual trauma by staying inside this tribe that rejects me at my very core. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, that's subsided to a large extent. But if that remained present, I would have to remove myself from my tribe. But for whatever reason, I'm, one of the things I, I have to say too is I'm really blessed to have a very close-knit group of friends 
where we hang out all the time and we're all in the exact same space and we just validate and honor each other and we're vulnerable and authentic with each other. And so that space gives me the medicine I need to continue to immerse myself in that unhealthiness. And so I continue to do it. But at some point, if that trauma becomes noticeably consistent, then I don't think I have any other choice than to exit my tribe. Before you ask your question, I'm just going to get her. She had her hand up behind you. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you coming and talking, and I really hope you know that. Um, so I've been out for 20 some years. Um, that you're willing to say, I'm going to stay in, and here are my reasons. Uh, one of my good friends started the Mormons building bridges, and that's turned into a really great movement that has actually seen change from within the tribe. And she's had some crises like you and like I have. I like suffer from being a Mormon and being in the tribe. And then we were having a conversation after this. Um, it came out about the the handbook where it said, you know, if your parents are gay, you can't get baptized. And it was so traumatic for me, and I was out. And so Eric and I were talking, and she was just traumatized from it. And I was like, Eric, how can you stay in this? How can you, you know? And she said, you can't change it. She said, Mary, I think the reason I choose to stay is because I know that there are going to be gay children born into this church. And just like what you said, I want to create a space, a safe space for these kids. So even though she's taking it upon herself to feel unsafe and traumatized, she's making it safe. And I really do believe that the church is changing and that people like you are helping that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you've probably read Ellen Holland's response to Tom Phillips. Mm-hmm. And, it, and he's very denigrated to Tom yeah. Phillips. I'm wondering, now I'd like to hear this story about what, what Holland said to you and what Jensen said to you, and then I'd like to follow up. So, Elder Holland, originally what he does is he writes a note to Marlon Jensen. I actually have the card in my, in my quad at home. It's a little tiny index card size, just a yellow piece of paper, but it's thick. It's hard cardboard type paper. And it's got a note on it that, you know, Bishop Real is having a struggle at this time. Brother Jensen, would you mind reaching out to him and seeing if you can resolve Brother Real's concerns? And how do you get hold of this? Jensen tells you? Uh, yeah. So Marlon Jensen, so the first contact I get after writing my letter to Elder Holland is I get a phone call at my work. Um, and I don't know how they got my work number. Maybe if I had a cell phone on me. But it's the secretary for Elder Jensen, and Elder Jensen is on the line. He'd like to talk to you if you've got some time. So I take the phone call, but I say, look, I can't talk to you right now. I'm right at work. Call me back later tonight. So I'm on my way home, and he calls me back on my cell phone. And I'm pretty much most of the way home, so I pull into my driveway as we're talking, and I just sit in my driveway and have a conversation with Marlon Jensen. As you know, Marlon Jensen's kind. He he outwardly, you know, is holding the ground that he's a believer, right? But you also get this sense that underneath all that, he realizes just how messy this gets. But he's so invested, right? That's and, a good choice of words. Yeah, yeah, he's so invested. And but he has this conversation where he's like, "Let's talk about it." So I throw all my issues out, just the standard issues. We could just, you know, 
read the chapter, the, the initial preface, preface to uh, the CES letter, for instance, right? And he doesn't have any answers. We know that. There's no answers. But it's have faith, figure it out on the other side, you know, things are messy, Lord loves you, I love you, you know, all that stuff. And Elder Jensen says, uh, why don't we stay in contact? Why don't you email me and let me know if you think there's changes that we could make as a church that would make things better? So I, I took him up on that. Send an email to Marlon Jensen. And I get a message back that he's going to send it on to whatever departments take care of those kinds of things. And then maybe three months later, I get another phone call at work. This time it's the secretary for Elder Holland. Elder Holland's on the line, right? That's pretty cool, right? When you're when you're in the church believing in the middle of a faith crisis to have an apostle of the Lord call you, right? <laughs> so I go back in one of the offices and take that phone call, and I talk to him for about 25 minutes. And it's the same thing. No good answers. Have faith. Figure on the other side. Lord loves you. I love you. And he also makes the same offer. Why don't you write me and email me? Let's stay in contact. And we'll talk about what we can do to make the church better. Now, some of that I know took place. One of the things I mentioned to him was that we need to start talking about depression in a serious way. And he has had depression. Yeah. And I specifically mentioned President George Albert Smith. I think that's the church president who suffered from severe depression. And his very next general conference talk, he talked about George Albert Smith. And he talked about depression. So I felt like, oh, I, I made a difference. Something, you know. Um... Maybe a year later, Elder Holland came to Ohio and gave a was the presiding leader at a leadership conference, uh, some kind of state meeting thing we had. And my wife was there with me, so she can testify this happened. But Elder Holland's there, and after it's over, I go to walk up to talk to him. I shake his hand, and I tell him, it's Bill Real. And he reaches down, right, and he grabs my ear, and he goes, oh, the famous Bill Real, right? And he shook my ear. And it was a cool moment, right? <laughs> Like, you know. Sounds like a salt to me. Did you get a doggy treat? What's that? Did you get a doggy treat? No. That sounds like him, though. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it, it was. I mean, that's what he did. Um, since then, I've written him many times after, maybe another six emails or so. But the very moment that my correspondence turned to... These are serious questions, and I'm going to hold you to these questions. Like, I need answers. Don't don't tell me you – don't dismiss these by changing the subject or doing these things you do to avoid answering the question. And from that point forward, I've never gotten a response back. So it was fine as long as there was hope that I was going to play the game his way. And I don't, I don't – and that may sound negative. Like, the moment he felt like it wasn't of any more use, like he wasn't going to bring me back – to, to believing the way he believes, then he lost interest in having that correspondence. And you said there was a follow-up. Well, yeah, and, and it's, it's, do you have, now you kind of partially answered it in a way because they did invite you to send your suggestions to yeah. somebody who had the power to make changes. I assume that those people that you were sending them to were not the top authorities, they were the bureaucrats, right? Mostly? Uh, my emails went to Marlon Jensen and Elder Holland and then they took those concerns both back to the top 15. Elder Holland relayed that. And Marlon Jensen relayed that he had sent my suggestions on to different committees that take care of curriculum and other things. Well, I think it's encouraging to know that those things are being shared within the top 15. Because a lot of times I wonder 
how isolated are they from the very real problems that do a lot of damage? Yeah. And 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 so my, my follow-up question was going to be, um, do you have any sense that, the, that those at the very top of the church understand what the problems are? And do they have any mechanism within the Quorum of the Twelve to address these things and try to come up with a solution? Because they certainly are not answering the question. Right. So my my gut feeling tells me that the top 15 are aware that church the, that as Bushman said the dominant narrative is not true. I think Why? they realize that. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think I think the top 15 know at this point <coughs> that this, the correlated story we've told for 200 years doesn't hold up. Um, but I also think that because I also think most of those leaders are in that ethnocentric oh, stage. And in that ethnocentric stage, it's easy for your brain to use mechanisms that take take uh, critical evidence and push it away, mm-hmm. and to wrap yourself in mechanisms that reassure that your belief is true. Confirmation bias yeah. is a way of life. Yeah, backfire effect, confirmation bias, belief persistence. There's tons of psychological mechanisms that our brains go through. So when these guys say like, oh, you're asking the wrong questions, Instead, you should pray and get the answer from the Holy Ghost. And this is your answer. <laughs> Their brains don't pick up on the idea that that works for the Jehovah Witnesses just as well. And and so when you and there, uh, Jonathan Streeter, who's a brilliant mind, Jonathan Streeter wrote a blog post on wood tools and steel tools. And wood tools always reassure you in the tribe you're in and keep you not questioning. But they sound like they're real answers. But when you actually examine them, you realize like, oh. That mechanism would work in any high-demand fundamentalist religion, including things like Scientology, which I see as deeply unhealthy, right? And, and so once you say, like, I'm just not going to accept wood tools. I need steel tools. Steel tools have to give me the ability to see a unhealthy false group from a healthy true group. And once you just see those tools, but when you're in, when you're in ethnocentricity, you don't see that. And so I think these men legitimately believe, like, oh, yeah, there's all that messiness but the Holy Ghost has told me it's true. And and they've lived a life of this plan working for them. Right? Like at every turn, they're so they're so righteous and God keeps moving them up and it's just the, it just works beautifully. And I think part of So they haven't got a clue that this is not working for millennials. Uh, yes and no. I think they know that lots of people are leaving. But I think they also look at all religions and see people leaving everywhere, and they just see it as an age of secularism, right? And so they just reassure themselves and say, it's not really a Mormon problem. It's just a human problem right now in this moment, right? And so it's easy for them to say, like, you know, we have less attrition or more attrition, but it's not any significantly different than what Catholicism is experiencing right now or what um, Methodism is experiencing right now. And in some ways, I think they're somewhat right. I think there's something happening that's more than just Mormonism, right? So I, I just think they have ways of not having to really deal with those questions authentically. And then, so then finally, when you ask the question, yeah, the moment they see it is they can't bring you back to their side, then the correspondence completely ends. The last time I got a response was probably three or four years ago. And I've sent six emails in the meantime, each one begging for a response with nothing given.
I, and I, I don't know who's first or last. Feel free to, but love to have a. Thanks for coming. Um, your story is fascinating on multiple levels. I think you have a luxury that many of us didn't, which was you were a convert. Um, and what I mean by that is I didn't have a choice to become Mormon when I was thinking. That was just the thing I did. And so I, 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 I know it's a hypothetical, so it may not be that helpful, but I just want to hear your thoughts about what if you didn't find that book in the library? Where do you think you'd be right now? I don't know. Like I ask questions all the time. Like, would I have entered these stages of human development had I not found Mormonism? Would I have joined Mormonism had I not found the Farm Rodi book? Would I have ever been interested as much as I am in Mormon history had I not found that? I don't know. Like, I don't have. You started out knowing way more than I would. I think it's safe to say most of us knew going on And you've used it to your advantage. I mean, it's fun to you. It's the sense that I get. I'm the smartest. I get to be the smartest guy in the room. Right. right? So you get a lot of, As a convert. Yeah, you get a lot of like reinforcement. Yes. Patriarchy works so good. Just <laughs> <laughs> a quick comment. One day, your leaders of your tribe will kick you out and hang out with us. Oh, I would love it. We're pretty smart, too. Okay. Conversations, <laughs> <laughs> not within the constraints of the Right. And that'll be familiar. We're the egotistical. <laughs> I I always tell people I'm I'm gonna be Mormon till I'm not. <laughs> I like the approach that you've taken on so many things. I kind of like your perspective on something that interests me, and that is the notion of worthiness. Um, that for a person to participate in high religious um, worship you have to be able to pass a checklist and that gets called worthiness and those who have said yes, 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 yes get to participate in this high worship service that many could benefit from if, I mean, I have other issues with, with the temple ceremony but, but in, in the nature of high worship and there's this idea of, of who's worthy and who's not worthy and and um, I just was wondering what your, if that was, uh, if that was any thought that crossed your mind, and what your perspective um, was on the issues of worthiness. I think any time we as human beings estimate in our behavior as well as our language that others around us are less than or more than. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think to do such is human, but I think to do such is also very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things of being in ethnocentricity is you need everybody to fit a mold. You need everybody to look the same. They all have to meet the same standards. Right. And my wife can attest to this. Even while I was still a believer being called as a bishop, I don't, I don't know what it was that like moved me into this space, but I just wanted to value people as just human beings. And right away, it was, it was part of what I spoke to earlier, where I began to see leaders, counselors in stake presidency, stake presidents, other bishops in my stake, act out of that like need to protect the tribal identity and the boundaries mm-hmm. and judge people as less than who simply were different. Yeah. And call them unclean yeah. in, in kind of a mosaic way. Yeah, and and so I'm I'm not comfortable with what we do in Mormonism in that way, mm-hmm. 
But I also realize, again, it's not Mormonism. It's human. Like we humans, we judge each other. We gossip about each other. We we decide who fits in our cliques and who doesn't. And And Mormonism, I think, sometimes highlights those things to a greater extent. But it's just not, it's not just Mormonism. What, what is your relationship, if any, with the temple? I haven't been in the temple in three years since I moved here. Um, I, can, I can make an excuse. I can say I work six days a week, 60 hours a week at my normal job. But that would just be an excuse, right? Um, let me speak on the temple for a second. Yeah, I don't mean it quite on that level uh, internally. And yeah. how does it fit into uh, your cosmic awareness and your tribal oriented life? Yeah, the, the temple doesn't interest me. I'm very uncomfortable in the endowment. There's parts of the temple I don't mind and I even kind of like. For me, I liked initiatories. Like I felt calm and spiritual being in that in that ordinance but ceilings or endowment like there's just the mechanisms of it made me really uncomfortable like i don't like the fact that i'm a brilliant person and there's an 80 year old man putting his clothes on faster than me like that bothers me like i'm, I'm agitated like why am i the last guy putting his the outfit on the way it's supposed to be on like that irritates me so the endowment makes me uncomfortable because i'm just like here's my tribe and i'm like the slowest guy in this room and so that bothers me um, but I also have to say, like, on a, on a spiritual level, again, I haven't been there in three years, but there's not a single time, and I think you guys will understand this, as strange as the temple is, and as plagiarized from masonry as it is, there's still something to you when you're a believing Mormon. Like, you come out of that building going like, yeah, I want to be a better father. Yeah, but it's I want to be. And I'm happy to agree with that. But it still, it still was an experience nonetheless. Like I still came out of the temple wanting to be a better person. And so for me, there's still this recognition that my human experience was that the temple was good for me as a human being in those moments. Like I'm, I'm not going to argue. I'm not, I'm not saying like God was present there and he gave me some special gift to walk out better than when I came in. But whatever the temple is for believing Mormons, there is something there that works. There is something there that's tangible. No, I get it. I understand. Like, there's a lot of unhealthiness there. A lot of people walk away damaged from the temple. Years ago, when I started on the path, I was getting all kinds of information, and I was doing a lot of study. And one day, I sat down at the computer, and I made a list of what those reasons were. And there were at least 50. Years later, I was able to sit down at my computer and delete the whole thing because I didn't need the list anymore. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. My name's Nick. Um, I've talked with you on Reddit a few times, so I do, even though we kind of disagree on where our conclusions lead, I've always yeah. appreciated your honesty in approaching them and your methods for doing such. Um, I guess I should kind of explain something before I ask my question. So you, earlier you talked about myths being important to like a cohesive cultural identity and stuff like that. Um, the problem I see within Mormonism, if 
it's about Christmas season. So my problem is, um, I've always said there's kind of two issues with Mormonism is that it's, I could say it's objectively false in some sort of way, but I said even if that was true, I could still participate to some degree if I felt it was ethically sound, if it was moral in some kind of good way. Sort of like Christmas, like I as some age kids, we kind of play the Santa Claus thing with them, but eventually they kind of grow up, and I say, oh, okay, that's just kind of a story to kind of help us enjoy the season and so on. The problem within Mormonism is that structurally, it seems that we never get out of this kind of childhood phase where you kind of still always believe in Santa, so to speak. It's where you get questions, things don't add up, and as long as you kind of stay within the structures that Santa's real, Joseph Smith is a real prophet, don't question the brethren. Even you mentioned some of the... Um, sort of guardrails you can't cross, even when asking your questions. So, like, I guess, how do you plan to overcome that through talking, I guess? Because I know many times already you've mentioned that your ultimate goal is communication between people. So how does your methods of communication kind of help people, I guess, kind of see that it's okay to question sort of the fundamentals without how do you phrase that? How do you attempt to get to people without having them question like the fundamentals of their religion, the things that kind of make up Mormonism itself, the first vision, the plan of salvation, and so on. Does that kind of make sense? Sure. So let me one follow up Okay. Let me try to answer it this way. Um if, if, if I existed doing what I do 30 years ago, would I still be in the church? No. No. So at this very moment, like right now, there is a Mormonism. And that Mormonism is defined a certain way. But if I, but if I fast forward 50 more years, I might be pretty well center who I am today. Like, I might be fully accepted. Like, yeah, we can have Bill Reels doing what Bill Reels does 50 years from now, and it's not even be an issue. What's that? Be the bishop again. What's <laughs> a bishop always a bishop? <laughs> so, in my mind, I'm able to, like, disconnect the idea, like, right now in this Mormonism, there's all this unhealthiness and no ability to move beyond the literal. But somebody has to engage these conversations to move us towards that Mormonism that exists 50 years from now. And and what I'm saying is that, like like um, the September 6, had the September 6 with what they did today, like it's no different than what Terrell Givens and Richard Bushman are doing. Like it's fully accepted now. And so all I want to do is have these conversations that move us to where. The Mormons of 50 years from now have a safer place to live out their lived experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. The second part to that is if we are talking um, the sort of open communication that you that you frequently mention that you would like to exist within Mormonism, ideally, what sort of Mormon what would you like Mormonism to look like? Because if we become sort of too subjective about things like uh, Joseph may or may not have seen him, God may or may not exist, Book of Mormon may not or may not be a story. It becomes so kind of watered down that you sort of lose the sort of cultural identity. Yeah. What kinds of things 
would have to exist to make Mormonism still exist as a sort of heritage, but at the same time, what would it look like as a sort of religious value? Would it encompass a sort of ethics? Would it just be so broad and vast that you can kind of just claim to be Mormon and not really have any sort of defined set of beliefs? Ideally, like, what would it look like to you? It's a good question, and I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking in that space, because I don't care if Mormonism dies or lives. Like, it doesn't matter to me. What I do want is for us as human beings to be healthier with each other, and for us 50 years from now to be healthier than we are today with each other, right? And so um, I, I just want people to, to wake up to recognizing, like, what's going on in our tribe is just our tribe, and we can treat each other based on not what tribe we belong to, but just the fact there's another human being standing in front of you with a story, an experience. The way, the way I would see that playing out in Mormonism, just to give you maybe a little bit, and I don't know if it'll work or not. I don't, in fact, I have my doubts because I think, I think any religion that bases the way it works on human development and healthiness, no high demand fundamentalist religion will survive in that arena. <clears throat> but in a perfect world, we would teach our kids myth as literal when they're in primary. And we would start to edge them out of that in their teenage years, right? We would start to talk about like, oh, the rib that Eve was made from was figurative. And start to let the kids think about like some of those really cool tangents Why to go off. Why mess them up? What's that? Why mess them up when they're little? Like, no, 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 I get it. I wouldn't do it at primary age. I'm talking teenagers. I no, would start why, to... why mess them up in primary age? Why fill them full of lies when they're little? <laughs> What do you do with your children? Um, my children are, I've got my son here right now. My children my children are essentially disconnected from Mormonism. Like, I, th I think some of my kids would look back and go like, yeah, it gave me some good things. And others of my kids would go, I wish I'd never touched that thing. But how did you process, if you hadn't touched? When I was a believer, I taught them a believing, you know, and then when I wasn't, then we got more flexible. If you had it to do all over again, what is your recommendation on, on people uh, with trying to raise young children in the church who are in this process of going from one centricity to another and at least are aware that Mormonism is not an accurate description of reality? Right. Let me let me finish answering his question and let me try to tie it into yours. Yeah, I see them as being related. So. Yeah, they are. They are. So you say like, why do it at all? And again, we could have a debate. We could take Santa Claus, for instance, and we could fight in this room about like, never do that or yeah, do that. Absolutely. Right. That's where it started with me. Right. <laughs> and so, as one who no longer believes in Santa Claus, he doesn't know. Wait. Oh, As one who doesn't believe in Santa Claus, I find the Santa Claus story with kids to be magical. And so I'm happy to honor someone else's experience who says I'm never going to do that with my kids. But if I had to go back in time, I would do it again with my kids. And, and I see religion in the same way, like sacred myth stories. And, and again, we don't have to impose them as literal, but I don't think we have to impose them as not literal either. Like... Just tell the story and let these kids, because kids are going to naturally 
formed these as literal. Can I pose a question that I wanted to ask you about four times? I'm still going to have to answer theirs first. If this relates exactly okay. to this question. <laughs> and I've been around you before, and I just can't get to this question. This question is about my trauma, and so it's very personal. I left, I, I buy those stages, and I buy the trauma you have as you come out of the church. Weeping. You disconnect, the family dissolve. And so you keep going, because I don't know why. Just like you keep going. So I kept going to the worldview, and I kept going to the cosmic view. And then the damn thing opened. And I got everything from dead people to whatever. But I have the same trauma. So the very thing I left thinking it didn't exist, gee, it's every day. But I have the same trauma, because I'm bouncing around. So your journey doesn't end. It keeps going and going. You get, I left that kind of visual or spiritual stuff. Then what if it comes back in your life? Yeah. And it's like nothing you've ever... You, things you read about, you didn't even know existed. And you remember past lives, and you meet the past people, and you see dead people, and all that other. So I'm in that trauma. And my question to you is, Nobody. You, do you know anybody in that kind of trauma? And that gets back to the other comment about why mess them up in the first place. I would yeah. have been better never to have been one. Sure. I, I think trauma is natural to life. It's just part of it. And, and, but some groups inflict it at higher levels, right? Like, let's just honor that. But I think to be human is to experience trauma. Um... I find myth to be important to connectedness. So back to the first question. I find teaching myth and allowing young people in their own space to make those myths literal, like Santa Claus, connects us as human beings. And I think if we take all of the myths out of our world, we are completely unconnected to each other. And I think we see this in a secular age. There's a lot of positives to secularism. But one of the negatives is we all kind of stay in our own space and we don't really join up with others and have these deep conversations, which is one of the great things you guys are doing. So I think myth is crucial to humans. Now, it doesn't have to be religious myth. We can come up with whatever myths we want, but we need them. And so if Mormonism is going to continue to exist, Mormonism has to have a mythical story. And so if Mormonism, if Mormonism is going to exist, he's asking what does Mormonism look like? And so we can debate whether Mormon myths are useful or not, whether they're healthy or not. But just to that question, like the point is we have to get to a place where, as adults, we pull back the curtain and let people know in a subtle way, like, yeah, the story isn't as firm as you thought it was. And the trouble with Mormonism is it holds the story from nursery age to adult Sunday school the exact same. And it never lets you in. And I've read articles on like these Indian tribes who... Um, they scare the kids with dressed up in costumes and, and eventually when these kids get to be 13 years old or whatever age it is, suddenly these, these people who dressed up every year for these events come into the kids' room and show them that they're actually the other tribe person. And it's this chaotic breakage of like, oh, I thought this was a real story and now I'm learning something else. But then they invite those kids to then dress up and do it to the next generation. And I think that's what we're doing. And I and I think I think there's something real that's happening there that's useful, 
But we have to put it into healthy paradigms. And so for me, I, I would want to invite people as they, as they move through church and as they're ready for it, that the church would develop a curriculum that would walk people into letting go of an outer authority, developing an inner authority, and letting go of black and white ideas, and letting go of literalness, and beginning to see, like, talking about a story at the literal level is like the least enjoyable, least useful way to do it. And so I wish Mormonism did that. And, and I don't know that it ever will, and if it did, it may die. I don't know. Um, yeah, you're welcome. I would just say along with that, when children ask questions, they deserve the right to hear the real answer, not how did Jesus make feed 5,000 people all two loaves of bread? Well, you just have to believe that because right. it happens to say, how did that work? Is Jesus no sound? Yeah, you've got to, they, children need their questions answered. Yeah, but that's a parent. But that's a parent who believes firmly, who's also an ethnocentricity. And so they can't give what they don't have. And so their defense mechanisms kick in because they don't, they can't have their own worldview threatened. Like where I'm at today, you can threaten my worldview all you want and it doesn't bother me. Like I'm perfectly comfortable putting all of my sacred things up on the table and let you guys examine them and criticize them. That's okay. But in ethnocentricity, you can't do that. You can't lay your sacred things on the table and let others look at it and examine it and criticize it. So you hold it and you give defensive answers like, you know, like the answer that we'll figure out on the other side, we all know like that's just a cop out. But it's a real answer for someone in ethnocentricity who can't feel threatened of losing their worldview. Right. And so back to what you said, I hope I answered your question kind of in the meantime. If I didn't, we'll get back to it. To what you said, um, ethnocentricity, people have a deep belief in whatever God they were raised in or brought to them. When someone moves into world centricity, just as all of you have done, you go through this dark night of the soul, you have a faith crisis, you begin to read books outside your tribe and listen to authorities outside your tribe, and you begin to let go of all of those sacred beliefs. And many of folks who go through this let go of God completely, right? We recognize like atheism is a huge thing once you go into this place of life. But they've done a neat thing. They've done a study, and this is Ken Wilber who's into spiral dynamics and development. Ken Wilber makes the argument that if you find people in the late, late, late stages of development, cosmic centricity and whatever those stages are, one of them he calls magician, which I talked to Thomas McConkie and I still don't know what that means. But in these late stages, they've done studies on people who they, they find to be in these late stages. And while there's this deep belief in God, a letting go of God, and being like, yeah, there's nothing, light goes out. When they get to these late stages, they begin to open up to the mystery again that exists in the universe, and they open up to saying, like, they don't know what to call it, but there's something bigger than us. There's something out there. And so it's marvelous to me, because I'm not there. Like, I realize there's mystery in the world, but I still can't quite figure it out. And you can never figure out somebody who's in the next stage after you. And if they're two stages away, like, they scare you to death. <laughs> right? Like, that's why people get killed. When they, do, when they go through these movements of trying to bring change is because they're in this stage, two stages after somebody else, and you're like, oh, we got to get rid of him. <laughs> right? Grab the pitchforks and the fire, let's do it. Um, but people in these late stages move back to spirituality, and they move back to saying, like, there's something bigger than us. And so when you talk about, like, moving through and some of these experiences coming back, like, it's perfectly normal. Like, it's easy to say, like, oh, there's no God, and then all of a sudden, one day you wake up in I these later stages. That, but I can't define it. Right. Like I said, people say, well, show me something. Oh, I caught something that happened, which I can't, I can't anymore. 
I go into absolute despair. Yeah. I, I would simply say, like, in those late stages, God becomes an option back on the table again. But the Gary Gulf is so large. Yeah. And I miss so many people. Yeah. And then I'll get you. You've had your hand up like a thousand times. I'm sorry. No, I just, I love what you're saying. And I can kind of relate. I actually, I have young children right now that I'm raising like, you know, now that I have a different view. And I like what you're saying about still, like I still read Bible stories with my kids and tell Mm -hmm. them, you know, and my husband at one point was like, why are you doing that? Because I don't even know what I believe anymore. Or like what's true, like with Jesus and if he's real or not. But I still, there's still just stories that are part of our, you know, part of our culture, not even just the Mormon culture, but so many people in the world. And I have no problems with teaching them other things about other religions as well. But I, um, when they do ask questions, like you said, I love how you said that, you know, there needs to be development as a church where as you get older, you're living on the secret kind of. Because now when my kids ask me questions, we have much more meaningful conversations. It's not me, like, my son's like, well, how, you know, who's Jesus, or I don't know, like, who's God's God, or dad, or whatever. And I'm no longer like, oh, we don't know, like, like shutting off the answer, I, or the question, I'm like, what do you think? And we're able to have better conversations where I'm not like, there is a Santa Claus, I promise there is. You know, it's like, I don't know, do you think there is? Or how do you think that's possible that this might happen? And, Anyway, so I just, I appreciate that. I do feel like it still, has still been meaningful to me to teach my kids the stories. Yeah. But I'm not like driving it in so hard or I'm like messing them up. Yeah, there's a difference it's, between introducing it and swearing by it. Which is parents yeah. are like, there is a Santa. Yeah. I want to punch them. Yeah. Because there's a difference. I would always say to my kids, with me, he's as real as Sesame Street. He's as real as Cookie Monster. And so it gave them whenever they were ready. And so it was never an issue. Yeah. So I think that's where there's a difference between what you do, introducing yeah. it, and there's a difference between this is true. See, it is the truth. Yeah, like before we go to Disneyland, I'm not like, just remember you guys, none of those people are real, they're all just totally pretend. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, the magic, right. like you said, right. there is value in in that myth and that magic. But at some point, like you said, we, like, we need to move with our development. Like, we need to be like, okay, like, that was so magical at the time, but hey, maybe we can look at it this way, yeah. and, you know. Yeah. And you're saying we can't grow out of that. To, to speak to that, <laughs> we all know having gone through a faith transition, like world centricity is is better. We know it. Like, and I don't want to speak like people are where they are and development is a natural progression. And it's not really fair to say like your stage sucks and my stage is cool. <laughs> right. But we but we do realize like world centricity is healthier and we're going to treat each other better in this stage. But you cannot, like you will, you will damage people if you take world centricity to someone who's ethnocentric and say like, take that. You'll hurt them. And so a kid, you can't take, like even with my own children, like I, I can't just take my kids and be like, here's where dad is, understand all these complicated issues. You have to do what you're doing, which is just allow the space so that when they're ready, they'll move into that next stage. And the trouble is Mormonism doesn't have any mechanisms to subtly walk someone into those later stages. You you can be a 75-year-old high priest in ethnocentricity and have been there your entire life and think you've arrived. You just said the core. What's that? You just stated the core. Yeah. And that's why when I speak to his his questions, <coughs> Mormonism has to develop me- mechanisms to walk people into development. Well... It will shrink. Okay. 
But it's already irrelevant other than to us who are in it. Before you go, I'll get you next, I promise. He's had his hand up like a dozen times. Okay, go ahead. We're here to validate our decisions, whatever we made, or when we made, yeah. or if we made them, right? And um, you know, yeah, it's really outside of Utah, Mormonism is very irrelevant. Yeah. Inside, it's crazy. It's everything. It's everything. And, it's yeah. politics. It's and your we're official from state. And eight years ago, it's the first thing like, what these guys are like celebrities, the uh, you know, general authorities. I, my question. Uh, is where do you think this is all going? And if you could maybe possibly share if you remember or heard the numbers, but I'm sure you did. Seemed like I remember on the podcast somewhere the different uh, um, X1 Reddit and you and, and John Lillian shared some of their numbers. And they were, they were like, wow. As far as downloads and this, you know, what, it, what the metric that you use. And because in my world, in my family, it's like, it's, all they want to do is be legitimized that this is a, a, a decision that can be made and is justified. I don't like to be ostracized. You want validation. I want validation that, hey, this is where you're at, that's fine, instead of being, you know, cut off from that. So and, and your circle, your, your neighbor, yeah, right. So. Um, all of us in this room, for one reason or another, we want to hear like everybody's waking up, everybody's seeing the messiness, and they're all beginning to take their life into their own hands now and make their own decisions, right? We all want that. Yeah, we want that headline, the paper, right? You know, <laughs> and then and then you go, yeah, I was there five years ago. You know, where are you at now, right? Like we want that validation. And, and I'll speak to the validation for a moment. Um, Mormon Discussion Podcast, the one I, I, I've run, we're getting 110,000 downloads a month. A year ago, we were getting like 27,000 downloads a month. And we're at 110,000 downloads a month now. So it's growing. But, but I also, you always have to still stay realistic and recognize that those waking up is still minuscule. Now, I think it's exponentially growing but it's still minuscule. And so if you could just like be happy that it's exponentially growing, whereas 20 years ago it was one guy in the stake over a 10-year period, today it's four, five, six, seven members of your ward who are having questions and either closet doubting or publicly out or leaving or you know whatever it is. But it's still 5 or 10% of an entire congregation. And so if you're dead set on these people coming to you one day and saying, like, you were right. Yeah, this thing's a mess. You were right. Like, it's not going to happen. It's not. And, and Mormonism has lots of mechanisms that guard you from that. I, I had a guy come in, and we were talking about this before we started today. I had a, a gentleman come into my store, and I welcome anybody who wants to come into Family Pond Hurricane. We've got a first edition of the Book of Mormon. We've got lots of Mormon artifacts. I'm happy to get those out and show you and have a conversation with you. But I had a, uh, a guy come in and talk to me. He came from like some other state, came in to run one of the marathons here in St. George. And he visits with me, and we go into an office, we sit down and we talk. And he says something like, um, he goes, I've been, I've been in this messiness for seven years. 
And just two weeks ago, I meet up with my brother. And for the first time, we have a conversation where I, I throw out a word, right? Like, and we know how this works. Like, Mormonism has created mechanisms that don't let us talk to each other. So, like, you get in a conversation with somebody, and you're like, uh, you ever heard of polyandry? And you, like, wait for someone to be like, yeah, have you heard that? Right? Because the mechanisms are in place. Like, you can't have conversations about having gone through this and risk the other person not having gone through this. And, and, and intentional or unintentional, those are really unhealthy, and we get that. So this brother comes in, and he says, like, my, bro- my brother, seven years has been walking in this, too. And I've been walking in this, and we have lots of contact with each other, but it's not until two weeks ago that we have a conversation where, like, you know, somebody says a word or a phrase, and they're like, hey, wait a minute, where did you hear that? And they begin to tell each other, like, oh, I didn't know you were safe to talk to. Seven years. And all we want are to have these conversations. Like, I don't, again, I don't care if people say it's true or it's false. Like, I just want people to have information and I want people to make decisions like like the best thing for their life, the way they see their life, and to have information available to make those decisions. But is it growing? Yes. Is it growing exponentially? I think it is. I hear so many stories now. It used to be people would tell me like it was the CES letter or it was, you know, whatever, some other thing. Today, the number one message I get from listeners to the podcast who say, I've, I've entered a faith crisis and I found your podcast, it's the Gospel Topic Essays. And to me, that's that's strong. When when people tell me their number one, the number one gateway into the rabbit hole is the gospel topic essays, that's pretty serious. Um, I think it is exponential, but it's still it's again it's five or ten percent. Jana Reese did a study where ten percent of active Mormons have doubts. It's just small. Is it, is it because the gospel topic essays are too strong or too weak? I think it's because when you read the race and priesthood essay. That essay alone is like this drastic slash into Mormonism where here's what we did and here's how we taught it. And here's what we said and here's what your parents told you were, you know, the reasons, the doctrines, the theories, blah, 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 blah. And then today we're like, mm. and it, that disconnect, because I was as a 17 year old joining Mormonism in 1996, I was raised in a Mormonism where even though we had made a change, those of color in 1975 were less valued than premortal life. They were cursed. And our leaders made that clear, and now we're like, no, that, that didn't really happen. That wasn't right. So I think people, when they read that essay, are there's this traumatic like change to like, oh, but I believed that. And now you're telling me that wasn't true. And that, I think the, the greatest gateway into development is paradoxes and contradictions. And so if you notice on my Facebook page, like I'm always instigating. But I always do it, I always do it in the form of a question, right? Because questions are honored, right? And so what I do is I always want to show paradoxes and contradictions, and I want to do it without ever drawing the conclusion and just let the conversation be organic and let it take place. But when TBMs see paradoxes and contradictions, like as a TBM, you don't even comprehend that Elder Uchtdorf and Spencer W. Kimball contradicted each other. And like in your worldview, like all of it meshes. And so if you can just hold, I'll give an example. Just the other day was Elder Nelson saying God's love is uncondi- or is conditional. And President Hinckley saying it's unconditional. And I said, I wonder which one it is. Now, I know which one it is, but I just want to create an organic conversation so that everybody who sees that come across their Facebook feed goes, that's weird. 
I'd never thought of that before. Those contradict each other. Yeah, because so many people do that. No, most people jump on there and are so furious at you that you even put that up there. And it's so funny every single time. It's just a question. And, and you'll do that and people are like, Bill, what side are you on? Right. And I don't, I, usually I don't even get into the, into the conversation. <laughs> All, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. If you want to slowly move somebody into development, you begin to put paradoxes and contradictions in their view. And force them to wrestle with that. And that alone will move this. And back to what you're saying, I'm seeing like one person wake up and I'm seeing then a year later three of their siblings. And I'm seeing a year later their mom and dad and two of their uncles. And I, I think every person who's waking up is also taking five more people with them over the next decade. And those five are taking five people with them. It's almost like multi-level marketing. <laughs> it's a pyramid scheme. Get in now, right? We got in early. Okay. I was just going to ask you, if, if your next conversation with Jason wants to meet with you again is, you've done it, you're X, you're out. How, how are you going to resolve that? I, I don't have a choice, right? Like I don't control that. So are you okay with that? Yeah. Okay? And I'm also not okay with it. Will you fight it? I mean, go. Will you? Yeah, fight it. So we know the process, right? If you're a if you're if you're a Mormon celebrity, you get 45 minutes to plead your case, and then they excommunicate you, <laughs> right? We've watched them all. That's that's the process. It's weird because that's not what the handbook says a disciplinary court goes like. But some reason, if you're publicly known, there's a different disciplinary court you get, right? So if I get 45 minutes, all I can do is try to wake people up and try to show them that this gets really messy and then bear what semblance of a testimony I have and then get excommunicated. And so I don't have a choice whether to be comfortable with it or not. I'm assuming I'll experience more spiritual trauma when that event happens, but I'm also okay. Like my life is good and my life isn't really, like I can, I'm okay if I had to take that tool belt off because I've got other tool belts sitting at my house ready to put on. And so I'm okay with that. Yeah. It's not my path anymore. It's just, it's it's a tool that I use on my path. And so whether it's there or not, I'm, I'm going to be okay. You'll plan to continue with the dawn, right? Um, using Mormonism as a context in which to wake people up, yes. Yes. Amen, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and I'm really not using it, so. Um, well, you said that you think that Mormonism will slowly work uh, towards that direction like you were It has no choice. But uh, if that's the case, then more and more people will start. I don't think, I think Mormonism is just here, and all religions, by the way, just here for the money. I think they are based on the money. Yeah, how they make people feel better on the side, maybe. But they are there for the money. So if they start losing money because more and more people are are saying, oh well, well let me think about this, then then they're gonna they're not gonna keep changing their patterns to make more people whole in their thinking. And they're going to clamp down because they're there for the money. They don't want to lose the money. Um, to speak to that, I think the church leaders are not dummies. 
I, I think they're really good at being business guys. And our business Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think they've done a very I mean if you look at how they're diversifying what brings in income. So you go back fifty years ago and yes, they owned lots of little stocks and businesses and sure they brought in money that way and but also uh, there was a large chunk of dependence on tithing. And when I look at what the church is doing today, I see it diversifying those avenues of bringing in income to the extent where they perhaps are noticing that 100 years from now, tithing may begin to decrease in such a way that they needed to find other avenues of income. And so part of, you know, part of the anger against Mormonism is you want to see the thing just shrivel up and die and starve to death. But, I, but I'm simply going to tell you I think those guys are too smart for that. And I think there's two options. One is to just be rigid and just let people have faith crises and let people just walk away. And what happens if you choose that, I think, I think the outcome is pretty dependable. You'll shrink, but, the, but what you have will be very strong, rigid, orthodox membership. So maybe instead of 15 million with 5 million attending, maybe you'll be 7 million with 1.5 million attending. But that's pretty dependable. I mean, you could say, like, we're pretty sure if we do this, that's the outcome. The other option is to become more flexible, more inclusive, and more loving. But that will also cause the numbers to go down. And you won't get the tithing revenue. No. But, <laughs> like this but there's also the possibility of while you'll shrink, you'll be something bigger than if you stay rigid. But you also might die. Right? I mean it. And so I think the church is stuck between having to consider whether it takes the known outcome of smaller but more rigid believing blind obedience membership or whether it takes a really big leap and a chance and either becomes something stronger or completely dies out. And if those were my two options, I would be scared to death. Please someone correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, well, one thing I wanted to say earlier, and in fact, I want to say it every day, uh, is I'm not sure that, in the, this isn't directly at you, I'm not sure that someone who was not indoctrinated from birth uh, in Mormonism can ever fully understand that experience. I've been to a Mormon meeting, with a of exceptions, in 25 years. It took me 55 years of struggling to finally figure out that uh, the Mormonism was not an accurate description of reality. Yeah. Uh, but then. Did the church just, with this whole Prophet uh, 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 Big Price manuscript thing that couldn't be denied because the facsimiles were were right there in the embalming instructions, and uh, I'm talking about the book, book of Abraham thing. Didn't the church just come out and say, well, yeah, is Book of readings, you know. 
There's that old involving missing scroll, right? Involving instructions for this church, uh, higher class Egyptian by the name of Hor. But, and then there's good old Hugh Nibley from his closet office at BYU writing that, well, we, evidently we've just not really uh, understanding correctly what was meant by the word translation. And so these things uh, suggested something to the mind of Joseph Smith, and then he would take it to the Lord, and the Lord would give him these revelations. But you don't have to believe it exactly that way if you don't want to. Did I misinterpret that essay? Isn't it now up to Mormons to decide for themselves? whether they want to regard that as a literal translation or they want to regard that as something that is uh, figurative and spiritual. Is that or is that not the case? Someone tell me. Yep. Do you mind if I speak to that for a moment? Or you want, do you want somebody else no, to? No, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll I'm I, looking for reality, folks. <laughs> I have a, so I just got done serving as the finance clerk in my ward. Served for, I don't know what it was, eight months, and then I asked to be released. I just, that's just a boring calling. So <laughs> I'm serving as a finance clerk. So every Sunday I, get, I count tithing with the counselor and the bishopric next to me, and then I go to the bank and drop it off, right? And so I use these car rides as a really fun time to help wake people up to development. <laughs> and so on the car ride to the bank, he goes, what do you want to talk about today? I said, how about we talk about the book of Abraham? <laughs> and I said, have you read the LDS book yesterday? He goes, yeah, I read that. And this guy's a this guy's a science teacher, like eighth grade science teacher. And I played I played that I used that to my advantage, right? So we're going to the bank, and I ex, I explained the problem, right? Joseph's translated facsimiles. He's translated close to the facsimiles because Joseph's got the Kirtland Egyptian papers, which shows all that stuff, which means we know what portion of the papyri he's translating from. So the missing scroll doesn't work. Catalyst theory doesn't work because Joseph's saying that Abraham. These are the words of Abraham translated by his written by his own hand. Blah blah blah. So I lay out the issues, and then I say, but the essay gives us five solutions. And I go through each of those. And then I looked at him, I said, you're a science teacher. When somebody has five solutions, and he cut me off, and he goes, they have none. Right? Like, he made the connection on his own. Like, he realized, like, if somebody's giving you five answers to a complicated problem, what they're really telling you is they don't have one good one. And, and so simply with the book of Abraham, I think the church is... Throwing, you know, Jello against the wall and hoping something sticks. And, and what what apologists do? What apologists do is this, right? So if you go to a fair Mormon and you write, you say, I've got an issue with the Book of Abraham. They say, Well, there's this missing scroll. But if you and, and they, but if you say the missing scroll doesn't work because of this, and they, well, well, then there's the catalyst theory. Well, the catalyst theory, and then they go to something else, right? And they're always just pointing back at the others, including the ones they've already dismissed in your previous finding that that didn't work. So they know all five answers have deep problems, but by having five answers, you can always point away from the one being criticized to the other four. And then when someone else criticizes this one, you just point back to the other one you just dismissed away from. So what does the church teach now about this problem? It's, it's up for, it's, it, you're right, it's up for every person to decide now how that sacred text came into being. We've got to cut this off right now. Um, I want to thank Bill.
Making out my issues never healed the blame And all 